Huge campaign dollars, death by 10,000 cuts, and the state of the Republican gubernatorial race here in Tennessee. Welcome to the July 16th edition of Grand Divisions, a Tennessean politics and policy podcast. I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter for the Tennessean. You remember how we said that those campaign finance reports would be coming out and that they would be really, really fascinating? Well, we thought they were fascinating. (laughs) And uh, there was a big story that finally emerged out of those reports. They've all come in. Joel, tell us about the findings from these uh, required campaign finance disclosures. The main finding is that there has been, through the campaign uh, up until the end of June, $37 million spent by the six top-tier gubernatorial candidates on the election. That makes it the most expensive race in state history. That is more than the 2010 gubernatorial election uh, and more than the 2006 Senate race between Bob Corker and and Harold Ford. And that doesn't even count spending leading up to the primary, right? Right. Like that doesn't even count like the the last last month expected spending surge that's going to happen any minute. And think about it this way. We're just about at halftime in the election. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) This just if you think you see a lot of campaign ads on TV and on your on your computer now, just wait. I mean, we haven't even seen spending hit yet in the in the Senate race. And we anticipate that the spending in the Senate race is going to is going to blow past spending in the governor's race. It, it, it's potentially going to be that. I mean, you, you had at one point, I think Phil Bredesen said it would cost $50 million to win uh, the seat. Uh, you know, that's going to be a lot of national interest as well. So you're going to have outside expenditures. But of note for the governor's race, uh, all of that money that we have counted for that total has just been the candidates themselves. That's right. So no, no outside spending there. You, you mentioned the, the Senate race. We got kind of an inside look into some of the strategy behind the the Marsha Blackburn campaign in the race. Our colleague Joey uh, Garrison obtained a recording of a a speech that was given by Ward Baker. He's an activist and he's a a key member of the the, uh, Blackburn campaign. He was speaking to a room full of Republicans in in Nashville recently, and he was just kind of talking about some of the the strategy that that their campaign has. And he he kind of jokingly said that the race will be won by, quote, death by 10,000 cuts. So just kind of a, a strategic continuing to kind of hit at Bredesen. One of the quotes he said was, I believe when the TV ads are out and we lay out our case, I think some of them will come back. And that's the idea of Republicans who might be on the fence with, with Bredesen. That's right. Yeah. And the ones that don't, I'll do everything in my power to make sure that they have trouble living in the future. Again, he got some laughs and some some applause. This is not out of character for, for the sort of things that he says. No, Ward is a, a very direct guy. He says things that other people that you've met along campaigns normally uh, may not say. Um, he said, you know, in this same meeting uh, that was, uh, it's called a, a gathering it called First Tuesdays. He said at one point, we have a list of everybody that's screwing us. And now he got some laughter. Uh, some people, you know, thought it was kind of a joke, but it may not have been. You know, I, I, I think that the Republicans, at least on the Marsha camp, are saying, we're going to keep an eye on the people that are with us right now. And and they've certainly seen some sort of tepid endorsement from Corker himself. Uh, he's been there uh, financially, says he's given money. He's also said uh, that he would, you know, back the nominee, i.e. Marsha. But he also has said that he's not going to campaign against Bredesen. So a lot of the political focus right now, understandably, is on this really contested gubernatorial primary. We don't know which Republicans going to emerge, which Democrats going to emerge. But these comments clearly indicate that there is a huge fight coming up 
on this Senate race. It's going to be exciting to follow which, and exciting to watch. Which Baker alluded to it being a, a, a boxing ring where they're just going to keep jabbing, jabbing, jabbing away. So Before we get there, though, we wanted to take a, a deep dive into the state of the GOP gubernatorial race. Last week, you kind of touched on the Democratic side. We brought in a special guest who has lots of knowledge about how the apparatus, the, the party apparatus works, what sort of strategies campaigns want to use, what's working, what's not working, and then kind of takes a takes a 30,000-foot view on the Republican Party itself. Uh, take a listen. Last week, we focused on the Democratic side of the gubernatorial campaign. This week, we're going to focus on the Republican side. Joining us is Brent Leatherwood. He's the Strategic Partnership Director at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Before that, he served as the Executive Director of the Tennessee Republican Party for four years. Uh, Brent, thanks so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And like I told Joel, it's like uh, getting the band back together. <laughs> That's right. You two in the same place. I know. <laughs> it's funny. Flashbacks, maybe you'd yeah, say. It was the last time we were all together. Wait, no, you didn't even make it to Cleveland. Uh, oh, no, I did. No, I was there. I think that was the last time it was all a blur. three of us That's were true. together. We're all there for the Republican National uh, Convention Republican there. Republican National Convention, yeah. It was a, that was a joy. That was a treat. <laughs> a lot of fun, right, for Joel? For some, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a whirlwind of uh, crazy reporting. I did two straight weeks of uh, conventions, which was not fun. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. Uh, on that on that same vein, I'm gonna gonna dive right in. Uh, as you've watched this Republican gubernatorial race sort of unfold and really heat up recently, have there been any sort of campaign strategies or campaign issues or ads or anything that really s- stood out to you and really s- and really spoke to you and as something that was effective or interesting or colossally bad or anything like that? Uh, one thing that, uh, that I've noticed that is probably new this cycle, and I imagine it's going to uh, very quickly become illegal, is uh, campaigns are now texting individuals. Um, so when I was at the party, one of the things that we used a lot of time were the ringerless voicemails. Right. So you just get right into a potential voters' uh, voicemail, leave them a campaign message, vote for this individual, or get out and vote today. But now... Uh, we're getting text messages. And because we're now in a society where people are largely no longer checking their voicemails on a routine basis, uh, the text message feels a little bit more personal. And I think some of the campaigns have have probably received some messages or feedback from the individuals who have received those. I've received two, um, but the two that I've received actually don't tell me who it's from. Right. Well, so that's the issue. Um, close it. Yeah. So both that I have received have been kind of hits on uh, competitors. And um, I've, I've tried to re-engage, like say, oh, okay, well then who should I vote for? Just to see if I can tease Any out. Any response? No responses. No. Interesting. Huh. And that's, so. a, that's the difference between the voicemail, right? The voicemail says this is either from the party or this yeah. is from a candidate. It's as, as you're supposed to do on any sort of TV advertising, you disclose who the ad's or coming Or like from. a robocall right. where you right. disclose. Yeah. So this is kind of like a text message robocall, but no disclosure at all. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, that's why I imagine this is, this is probably very quickly going to become illegal. Who would have to make it illegal, though? Is it the, the state the legislature? State? Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, uh, campaign finance only will will kind of come back once uh, mm-hmm. the legislature uh, kind of speaks on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when uh, when I was advising candidates, we always advised them, hey, put a disclaimer on it. Even if you're mm-hmm. unsure that it's necessary, just go ahead and do it. So probably uh, the way to ascertain who is sending these out mm-hmm. will eventually be the disclosures. You briefly mentioned it, but these it sounds like these text messages have been somewhat negative. There have been a lot of negative ads in the race so far. 
Uh, we've seen them going back and forth between Diane Black and Randy Boyd. Mm-hmm. Do negative ads work? I mean, is, is that a successful <clears throat> strategy for a campaign? The reason campaigns do negative ads is they do work. Uh, however, there does become a uh, th- there's a tipping point that is reached in an environment where people start to just completely tune them out. Mm-hmm. They just get sick of all of it. And to an extent, I mean, so now we're, I guess we're going to talk different personalities, but to an extent, I think that is the playbook that, that Bill Lee is using. Mm-hmm. And that is a, a way that, you know, as folks are talking about this race shaping up, you know, six months ago, that certainly was a conceivable path here is that if, uh, if Commissioner Boyd and Congressman Black were to knock one another out, uh, there could conceivably be a way for either Bill Lee or Speaker Harwell yeah. to kind of cut through the middle there. And so I think I think that's actually maybe what they're seeing now. And, mm-hmm. and so they're trying to take advantage of that. But no, negative ads do work. I, I, what I would say is that, you know, if if I am advising a candidate, and we always tried to do this when I was at the party, don't necessarily go negative because voters get turned off of that. What voters appreciate is a contrast message that sticks to the issues or sticks to facts that are relevant to the campaign. Hmm. So when you start getting into the the name calling, um, as much as that's in vogue now nationally in our politics, uh, what voters actually appreciate is sticking to the issues. Mm -hmm. Did an individual actually raise taxes? Did an individual actually... Uh, support this measure or not. Mm-hmm. Um, voters want to be informed, um, but once it gets to a point where, you know, the dark ads with the foreboding voice and things like that, that's when voters start saying, you know what, I that's just not what I'm looking Which, for. Which, I mean, you're alluding to, but there's one ad from Randy Boyd's uh, camp that has like a swamp in the background. It's this swampy sound. And, and yeah. you know, that's the kind of, I think that that point where, a voter may see that and just think, oh, this is just terrible negative campaign. Yeah, I, I haven't actually seen that ad. Somebody had pointed out that he like, I guess there's there's like a, a swampy yeah, like calling, filter or something on DC it. Diane. And, yeah. yeah. I think so it's I, a swamp animal in there too, right? Yeah, like a literally. like a frog or yeah, a, or a yeah. alligator or something. <laughs> and, and who knows? Maybe it'll work. We'll see. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe. I, I mean, that's uh, each... Each campaign is informed by polling that is going out, surveying that's going out, focus groups that they're conducting. Mm -hmm. And so by and large, and look, these campaigns are being run by people far smarter than me. (laughs) Uh, So they they know what's going to move a particular subset of voters. And that's where they're really at right now in the calendar. Uh, They are trying to move either folks uh, that are persuadable uh, from other candidates or that last remaining core folks who who are undecided. And they're just trying to move them from that place uh, over to their candidate. So what they're doing is they're doing it for a reason, and it's backed up by probably scientific polling that says it will work. Why do you think none of these campaigns have been able to really like pull ahead of one another? It seems, if anything, that this race has gotten tighter. And I understand it's an open race, and these are these are four campaigns that are spending a lot of money or they're people that you might know. But but in theory, you would think maybe a sitting congressman would have an edge and just pull away or or somebody like a Randy Boyd who, who can put in a ton million, of money yeah. would just pull away. How, why do you think it's still seemingly a very close race? I, I think there's two reasons. A, locally in, in Tennessee with this group of candidates, all of them are actually very good candidates. Uh, they all have um, really good records, or they uh, they have voiced support for uh, issues that probably the vast majority of Republican primary voters uh, resonate with. 
and so they they all kind of meet that minimum threshold of viability. Uh, at the same time, they're all spending these large amounts of money, so they are effectively, you know, getting groups of voters behind them that keep them all pretty much uh, in the ball game. Uh, but then, larger than Tennessee uh, nationally, the Republican Party is is kind of having a conversation nationally about what direction does it want to go. And so, I don't want to go so far as to say it's it's fractured, um, but there is definitely a, a conversation, um, you know, that um, several of us who have worked in the party before have been involved with nationally about what does uh, the Republican Party as a vehicle for conservatism, what does it look like in the next five, ten years? Uh, and where do we go from here? And I think that's just kind of mirroring here. So some of these, the candidates that you're seeing um, that are leading in this race, they represent kind of different par- portions of that conversation. I think voters are just trying to figure out where do we go? How does the state of the Republican Party today, either locally, nationally, compare to when you were, you know, at the the, the party? Part of that I can't answer because I don't know uh, what the Republican National Committee, what sort of assets they Mm -hmm. have uh, provided for Tennessee. Obviously, on the other side of the ticket, uh, we have a U.S. Senate race. And so the RNC is going to be very motivated to keep the seat in Republican hands. But I'm not exactly sure what uh, the RNC and the NRSC uh, are doing here. So I can't speak to that. But ultimately, you know, we have more identified Republican voters in Tennessee than the Democrats do. It is a huge uh, deficit that Democrats would have to make up in any statewide election. Is it impossible? No, because uh, just, you know, 12 years ago, uh, they mounted a very competitive U.S. Senate campaign sure. uh, with Congressman Ford. So it's not like Democrats just don't exist in Tennessee. Um, but over the last 10 years, Republicans have been just more motivated, more enthusiastic about turning out. And ultimately, that's that's where the November races, that's what it's going to come down to. Uh, where, the who excitement is, level? Yeah, or? who is more enthusiastic mm-hmm. and more engaged? But do you think, I mean, if you're talking about that, that these campaigns should be running these issues-driven um, ideas and not just throw punches, at the same time, I think people have noted, including Governor Haslam, that a lot of what these gubernatorial candidates on the, on the Republican side are talking about is not what's going to come across their desk on a day-in, day-out basis. I'm thinking specifically about, like, border security sure. or sanctuary cities, which... Let's be clear. There were no sanctuary cities. The state legislature banned the idea of having any sanctuary city policies. I think every campaign has talked about banning sanctuary cities. So how do you balance Mm -hmm. this idea between how how these campaigns are trying to talk about the things that Republican voters want them to talk about versus providing ideas for the vision that they would have as governor? Yeah, they're just they're just trying to send signals uh, based on some of those issues, whether they're relevant to actually running the state or not. They're just trying to send signals to, you know, different slices of the electorate that, hey, I'm I'm your I'm mm-hmm. your guy or I'm your girl uh, for this particular issue. Ultimately, I mean, you're right. Sometimes what you campaign on for these races has nothing to do with what you will face in the office. And I think Governor Haslam's letter uh, in the Tennessee and did a very good job of showing the reality of governing. Well, and I would hope that as the general you know, as we move forward towards the general election, that it would become a little bit more about that, the substance of, okay, this is how I'm going to take office than necessarily throwing the meat at the party, right? Yeah. And and I will say, Dave, it's not, it's not about not throwing punches because like I said, you can have legitimate, significant contrasting point of views uh, with an opponent and it is very relevant to a race. It's more of when it goes into the, uh, to use an old phrase, you know, the politics of personal destruction, 
that's that's just not what voters really want to go through anymore. They want somebody who is going to offer solutions. Now, whether those solutions that are thrown out in the midst of a campaign are tethered to the reality of governing, sure, uh, that's for each of those candidates to decide if they want to go that route. Do you do you see anything happening that can be like just a massive shakeup in the Republican primary before the August second election? Maybe like a, a a President Trump endorsement, or just anything that really like blows up the race to a point where it might be clear somebody's going to win or somebody's definitely not going to win. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, at this point, it, it, it seems as if the campaigns have kind of all emptied out the oppo folders uh, on their opponents. And define themselves. Already. Yeah. And so now it is, I mean, at this point in the, the campaign calendar, the, the candidates, if they're working well, they have identified their universe of supporters. Sure. And so now with today being the first day that we're recording this on, uh, the first day of early voting, uh, they're now kind of transitioning over into their get out the vote operations. And they're just trying to remind people at this point, hey, your opportunity to vote is here. And so uh, and that's going to particularly start in earnest uh, in Davidson County once it gets away from the downtown location and goes out to the satellite locations. And so, you know, at this point, I don't know that there's any large scale event that's going to happen uh, absent Air Force One landing again uh, in you know Nashville and, and, and President Trump making some sort of public endorsement. I don't think he's going to do that. He's going to be in Helsinki, so uh, he's not coming to Nashville. Uh, so absent something like that, which, again, I think is very unlikely at this point, uh, it's now about who has the best operation to turn out the identified group of voters that they have and potentially dissuade the voters uh, of uh, identified for other candidates to maybe not turn out. Once the, the uh, primary is done, is the general election, you know, obviously, is the Republican favored heavily in, in the general? Or do you see, you know, this kind of a, as a uh, an even playing field for Democrats? Yeah, so that's going to – so, I mean, honestly, November is a world away mm -hmm. uh, from where we are right now. And so the national environment, uh, I think, could be markedly different. Uh, it could be even more uh, helpful for a Republican running uh, at a statewide level, or it could be harmful. It just – it really – this this environment that we're in is so fluid. But I would say if you could remove that factor, which you can't, but if you could, <laughs> uh, the, the field uh, going forward for Republicans, I think, is still very favorable. And the U.S. Senate side, um, uh, Congressman Blackburn is, is going to have uh, a very strong campaign. And those voters are going to come out and support her. And that will uh, help whomever the gubernatorial nominee is on the Republican side. Um, and whomever uh, emerges out of this Republican field for governor, uh, they're going to have a substantial campaign. Well, and at the same time, you imagine that with Phil Bredesen on the ticket, that that's going to help either Greg Fitzhugh or Carl Dean, right? I mean, this is this is seemingly, especially if you look at the tickets that Democrats have put forward in the past several elections, this is either their way, it's going to be their best ticket in a it while. It is. Yeah. And, and I've told many people around the country in conferences that I've gone to have asked, uh, Bredesen is without a doubt the best uh, recruiting possibility that Democrats could have gotten, either, in, honestly, in Tennessee or anywhere in the South. Uh, he's been on the ticket twice before. Uh, he's been successful. Uh, a lot of folks look back at his time as governor in, in uh, you know, a really good light. So, yeah. He's got no, crossover you, appeal. Yeah, you cannot underestimate him. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think going forward, I still would rather be running as a Republican than in, as a Democrat. In the governor's race, uh, whoever comes out of that, who do you want to see as the Democratic opponent for the Republicans? 
Do you want Craig Fitzhugh? Do you want Carl Dean? What are, what's the positives and the negatives? Yeah, I think, um, so I am just uh, trying to remember from my time. I think that Carl Dean had a, a bigger uh, opposition research folder than <sighs> Craig Fitzhugh. Uh, I think that uh, Fitzhugh's past remarks, though, about the income tax, um, those would certainly, I think, be revisited. But uh, Carl Dean, Carl Dean, I think, has uh, just some more items in his background that Republicans can make a natural contrast with, um, even prior to his time as as mayor of Nashville. At the same time, though, he is uh, definitely going to appeal a little bit more to the moderates or independence, you would think, than Fitzhugh would, who is a little bit, some see, further to the left, I guess. Yeah, maybe if if Tennessee were a Virginia uh, or a Florida, but even the moderates in Tennessee are still more Mm -hmm. center-right than just right down the middle. And so, I don't know. I, I again, I, I would be very bullish running as a Republican still. Last question here, and this kind of plays on on your your current role as much as as your previous role. We've heard a lot in the Republican primary about candidates and their faith, and mm-hmm. candidates and um, what role they think faith plays in in their personal and in their professional lives, including. Bill Lee's talking about making something he's calling the faith-based and community initiatives office. What role do you think faith should play not only in a campaign, but in the day in day out decisions of a governor? So, uh, you know, faith, all of these individuals that are running, you know, they, they are informed by their faith, whether it is, you know, being Southern Baptist or whether it's just, you know, uh, I'm very secular, uh, in my view. So that, that's still informing them. Um, but for folks who hold to a traditional faith perspective, um, you know, I, I am glad that it informs their decisions. Uh, we, in the work that we try and do, we try and get more elected officials to see issues through the lens of, um, you know, we say human dignity, uh, because we think that every individual uh, should be treated with the inherent dignity that they are due because they uh, carry the image of God on them. And so, uh, so that when you engage people from that approach angle, you necessarily treat them with more respect, with more dignity, and your, uh, your policy preferences start to change a little bit. You can't otherize and dehumanize individuals. And so we think this is, inc- this is critically important because we are seeing more policies uh, emerge out there that do tend to otherize and dehumanize uh, specific portions of the population. Um, so we would be there for whomever wins on the Republican or Democratic side uh, to help them start seeing through that lens. Don't, don't you think some of that otherization is coming f- more from the Republican side than from the Democratic side? I think there are troubling elements that I could point to on both sides. But yeah, I mean, I have a personal kind of stake on the more conservative side of things to speak to those individuals about how their language is hurting individuals as well. But on the Democratic side, I I could still have a bone to pick when it comes to the dignity of the unborn. Mm. Um, So, I mean, you know, it's there are both sides that have uh, troubling elements. And that is actually the work that we do at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, is we try and work with elected officials on both sides of the aisle to get them to understand uh, how their policy preferences impact people of faith and people of conscience. Brent Leatherwood, Strategic Partnership Director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, former Tennessee Republican Party Executive Director. We really appreciate you taking the time and uh, talking this through with us. Thank you. Thank you all. Appreciate you both.
listeners. I'm Tennessee Politics reporter Jordan Bowie, and this is Fact and Fact Check, a segment of the show where we offer both facts about Tennessee politics and check out questionable statements and figures tossed around in the political arena. Last week, we looked at early withdrawal deadlines. This week, we check out stats on early voting. In 2006, almost 450,000 Tennesseans voted early, up from 404,000 in the 2002 election. And over 543,000 people voted early for the August 2nd primary in 2010. As another tidbit, between November 2014 and November 2016, 30.7% of new voter registrations came from people getting their driver's license. That's our fact. Now on to our fact check. Republican gubernatorial candidate Diane Black has made opposition to undocumented immigration a primary focus of her campaign, as well as support for President Trump's border wall. But a recent ad by primary opponent Randy Boyd called this support into question. He pointed to a 2016 Katie Couric interview where Black says, quote, You can't build a wall that won't work. Black has said the video was selectively edited and that she has always been an ardent supporter of the president and his wall. Quote, What I was trying to say in regards to what Katie asked is, Does a wall do it? And I said, we can't just do it with a wall, Black told reporters Friday. But a USA Today Network Tennessee review of the entire interview with Couric, which ran after Trump's strong primary win in Tennessee, found that Black refused to say in the interview which candidate she would support. She also said she would oppose a proposed Muslim ban and that there are other ways to monitor the border than a wall. That's our fact and fact check for this week. Check back on our next episode for another segment. As Brent alluded to, the polls are officially open in Tennessee. They open Friday, July 13th. It's early voting. Early voting runs until July 28th. Initially, it's kind of in some select sites in Davidson County and around the state, but it kind of expands before it ends. You can find lots of information about where these early voting polls are at Tennessean.com and at the Secretary of State site. The Tennessean also launched a huge voter guide. It's got a ton of information on everything you'd want to know about, uh, about all the races that are on the ballot. Yeah, the special section that we have has everything from letters from Bob Corker and Bill Haslam to their successor, essentially just penning advice, uh, wisdom that they can share. We, we ask them for letters, and they've been uh, willing to contribute for us. We also have an analysis of, the, of both the Senate and the governor's race. We've got uh, little voter profiles of uh, a couple folks that one guy who's historically voted, another guy who just became a citizen and is looking forward to voting. And then we also have candidate survey of questions that we ask them to weigh in on a variety of topics. So feel free to check those out as well as our profiles of the various candidates in the governor's race. That's right. And uh, again, just a, a wealth of information on all the races that that are out there and on what you need to vote, you know, how to bring your ID, where you need to go, what they expect you to to have at the polling place, which is just good information to have in case somebody asks you for something you might not need or just just it's always good to have that information. So next week, moving forward on the podcast, we have a very special guest who's joining us. We anticipate we're going to be talking with Governor Bill Haslam. He's going to talk about the state of the race, about his time as, as governor. But we also want to hear from you. Yeah, we're, we're hoping that everybody can engage us and either email Dave and I. We've got our emails at the bottom of most of our, or should be all of our stories, our phone numbers. You can also send us uh, messages on Twitter. Basically, send us your questions that you want to ask the governor. You can use the hashtag 
Grand Divisions, so hashtag Grand Divisions with an S at the end, to ask us questions that we should post to the governor, and we'll select a couple of them to ask him during our podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. We, we appreciate your support. Please continue to rate us and to subscribe on iTunes, wherever else you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find our cast and helps us get that information out there. Again, I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.